Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Hello, everyone. It's Monday, and it's October. Spooky time. It's my time of year. I'm so excited. All month, we are devoted to horror for Halloween, and I was so excited because Lisa Morton agreed to come back. She is a Halloween expert, and we got to chat last year at the beginning of Halloween time, and I had such a blast that I was eager to invite her back, and she has a new book to tell us about, too. So if you've never read Lisa yet, you're in for a treat, and I'll read her bio here so you can get to know her. She she is like everything Halloween. It's very exciting. So she is a screenwriter and an author of nonfiction books and a prose writer whose work was described by the ALA's Reader Advisory Guide to Horror as consistently dark, unsettling, and frightening, which is a huge perk for a horror author. (laughs) She is a six-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award the author of four novels and over 150 short stories. She's a world-class Halloween and paranormal expert. Her recent releases include The Night Terrors and Other Tales and Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. I think that's what we talked about last year. And her latest short stories appeared in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2020, Final Cuts, New Tales of Hollywood Horror and Other Spectacles, and In League with Sherlock Holmes. Her weekly fiction, her weekly original fiction podcast, Spine Tinglers, is now live at My Paranormal Network. And forthcoming 2021 is the anthology that we're going to talk about today, Weird Women 2, co-edited with Leslie S. Klinger. And lives in Los Angeles, and I put a link to her website right there on the Blog Talk site. So if you're listening now or listening, you can click that anytime. Sign up for her newsletter. She sends out fantastic newsletters. And her website has lots of great content on there. And you can check out her podcast and all the books. And anyway, so be sure to hop over there. I don't want to delay anymore. Lisa, are you there? I sure am. And thank you for that introduction, Lisa. Yeah, thanks for coming back, Lisa. I feel like Lisa fist bump here. Um, (laughs) It's great to have you back. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we had so much fun last year talking about these seances and so forth that it'll be fun to talk about stuff this year, too. Right, right. So I was babbling with you before the show started about the Weird Women too, but I was reading all of the blurb about it. And if, if for the listeners who don't know, Weird Women 2 is an anthology of horror fiction from female writers from 1852 to 1923, which I think not only is fantastic because horror still to this day is pretty male-dominated, so to know that there were female horror fiction writers back in the 1850s, I just love that. But I love that one of the headliners is Louisa May Alcott. What? <laughs> I did not know that she wrote horror short stories. So I'm really eager for you to you know, tell everybody about the book and what can they expect to find in there. Yeah, um, last year my editing partner Les Klinger and I did the first Weird Women book. The one that is just now coming out in this year is a follow-up volume, Weird Women Volume 2. And the fact that we have already assembled two volumes of these stories tells you that not only were women writing horror in the 19th century, there were a lot of them writing a lot of horror. 
And yes, we have big names in both books. We have Louisa May Alcott, who, by the way, loved writing this stuff and preferred it to writing her books for kids. Um, I love that. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I mean, you you automatically think of her as little women's author, but she loved writing these these thrillers and horror stories, and she wrote a lot of them. Um, We also have authors like George Eliot in the new volume, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Virginia... um, Actually, oops, I just gave away something. Virginia Woolf is in a book we're working on now. (laughs) Oh, Um, wow. Yeah, so these authors were not just the the big names writing horror, but there were a lot of women who we have kind of lost track of now who were spectacularly talented. Um, Charles Dickens, for example, used to put out every year a Christmas annual that was full of ghost stories because back in the 19th century that was one of the ways the Victorians liked to celebrate Christmas was by gathering around the, the hearth and reading these scary stories to each other on Christmas Eve. And he Merry so he Christmas. Put out these, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, sounds great to me. And uh, right? he put out these, yeah, totally, these yearly books that were full of ghost stories. And he actually had like a little stable of writers he went to every year for these ghost stories, and most of them were women. Um, and wow. they wrote spectacularly good ghost stories, very scary ones. One of um, the earliest classics is in the first Weird Women volume, and that's a, a story called the old, the old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskell. It's a very scary, um, haunting story that is, I think is just as relevant and as frightening today as it was when it was written in 1852. Wow. And I was going to I'm I'm very curious how how do you find these stories because I was reading a lot of the names that it says in the blurb were very popular in the day but I didn't recognize any of those names. So how did you go back how did you go back in time and find those? We have a number of different um, research methods that we use. Uh, We will read, for example, critical histories of the genre, and quite often the earlier scholars have done some of the hard work for us. So we'll read uh, an essay from like 30 years ago, and they will mention such and such wrote a great story, and and at that point you go, oh, I have to go read that. Um, For me, I have an additional resource which has been invaluable. My day job is a bookseller, and I'm a bookseller at a used and rare bookstore in North Hollywood, California. So quite often we'll get something like a 1930s anthology come through the store, and I will grab that and open it up and see something that looks interesting, take it home, read it, and yeah, so... Um, that's one way, although in um, the book that Les and I are just now finishing up, which will be out in uh, 2022, I found my favorite story in the book in a really interesting way. I started looking more into those Dickens Christmas anthologies, and I was thinking, hmm, you know, I haven't read all of those. I wonder if there are a couple of little hidden gems lurking in there. And in the process of kind of digging through those, I found a letter from Dickens from 1855 in which he was writing to a friend. And he used to, um, I guess, read the slush piles on these magazines himself. And so he says to this friend, I have just found the best ghost story ever written. 
And I saw that. Wow. And I was like, what is this? So it was a story by a woman named Dinah Mulock. Um, he published that story in his magazine two weeks after that letter in March of 1855. And the story is amazing. It really is wow. one of my new favorite stories. I can see why he was so taken with it. And it's a story that has been unjustly neglected. Um, the story had two titles. He published it under the very simple title, A Ghost Story. But the author put it in her own collection two years later under the title M. Anastasius. And we're using that title. And um, I am so thrilled and so excited to be able to show this story to people again in 2022, um, because I think a lot of people will love it as much as Charles Dickens and I do. Yeah, wow. And how do you go about, uh, when you're editing these anthologies, how do you go about getting rights to a story that's so old from somebody who's obviously passed away, how, how do you track down, you know, copyrights and all that kind of thing? Or are they old enough that it's, it's out of copyright? They are old enough. Um, at this point, you can, uh, everything um, prior to 1925 is now in the public domain and can be used. Oh, okay. So you don't have to track down relatives of, <laughs> of the deceased writers. You don't, and in some cases it would probably be, actually in many cases it would be impossible. I think, um, I mean, certainly some of these women had big families, but many of them didn't. So I have no idea how you would track down relatives on some of them. Yeah. Wow. I I just I find it so fascinating. And then when you read them through, how do you think that the storytelling speaks to readers today because I know, you know, when you read the classics, our storytelling has changed so much. Everyone writes in deep point of view and all that kind of thing. No omniscient narrators. And, but I think omniscient narrators work really well with horror. So do you think the stories hold up, you know, or do some of them feel more dated? How do you judge that? Well, some of them do feel dated and those tend to be the ones that we don't use in the books. Um, Occasionally, we will use one that we think is kind of historically important or um, interesting to modern readers, maybe for some other reason. Um, But we also annotate the stories. So we provide not only a little introduction to each story that tells you who the author was, but then throughout the story, we provide annotations because what we find to be... Yeah, more often what happens is not that the story is somehow dated and uninteresting, but that certain um, terms or names um, would probably not be known to modern readers. So we provide the little footnotes where if you're reading along and you're like, what is that? Then we'll tell you at the bottom of the page so you can um, understand a little better. Oh, I like that. And do you ever feel like, I know I mentioned <laughs> you time travel to find these writers, but when you read, like I read um, in the blurb that some of them are like Old West, you know, ghost stories kind of thing, do you feel like you're time traveling when you read through these old Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens stories and things? I don't know if it's so much that I'm time traveling as that maybe I'm in the right time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just... Although for me, I think what's most important is to, a great story is so timeless. 
And um, it's such a delight to find something that you read it and you get so caught up in it and you finish it and you're so satisfied and then you realize, oh, my God, that story is like 150 years old. Um, So those are the stories that we try to find and put into the books. I love that. And I know – I think you and I both have that Ray Bradbury connection, but I love because he used to say, you know, electric, Mr. Electrico and live forever and, and you need to write these stories because you live forever. And when you pluck them out and put them in this anthology, I feel like that's what you're doing. You know, these writers get to continue. They may have been forgotten, but now they get to continue to live forever. I mean, does that feel, <laughs> is that a little out there or does that sort of feel like what you guys do when you pick through these things no i absolutely feel that way um and i just i love the idea that um i am giving these remarkable stories a new home um with readers who may not have been familiar with them before and um and may uh, hopefully will go seek out even more work by these women on their own Right. Yeah, I love that. And with the with the internet, you can almost find anything. It's it's really it's really amazing. And so maybe some of the women's work is, you know, saved, preserved somewhere. It is. It's it can be found online, but also there has been um an increased awareness of these women kind of across the board over the last few years. There was a wonderful book that came out a couple of years ago by two authors, Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson, called Monster She Wrote, which was a sort of female history of horror. And um, they started their own imprint at a wonderful publisher called Valancourt Books. So they are, for example, republishing many of the books by these women. And also the British Library is putting out a wonderful series of old uh, collections of horror stories, and they're doing um, very particular collections of some of these women. So it seems like it's kind of the right time for them to come back into public awareness. Yes, and to come back, you know, ghosts, of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) They wouldn't have wanted it any other way. So I wanted to ask you, because you've been a writer and an editor for the anthologies and that kind of thing, What, how does it feel different to you coming at it? Because as a writer, like when I'm writing, I want to write something that I haven't tried before or write something that I don't think other people have done a whole lot and all that kind of thing. But when you are being an editor and pulling together these anthologies are you working along a theme are you you know what it's got to be a totally different hat right that you wear it is very different um yeah it's but it's it's fun um in a different way it is something where the good angle of it i think is that it makes you more aware of certain things in your own work um, when I am editing a modern anthology, which I have also done, and I'm reading just blind submissions or whatever, I will see writers make mistakes that I will think, oh, damn, I think I did that in my last story. I need to not do that anymore, which <laughs> is really, really useful. Um, but when I am reading these extraordinary stories by these 
like legendary authors, you can kind of get the reverse out of it. You can look at it and go, wow, <laughs> that's amazing how she did that. I wonder if I could do something like that. So the editing is, a, I think, a wonderful way to improve your own writing um, on top of all of the other satisfactions that it comes with. Yeah, and you've won a lot of Stokers for this kind of thing too, right? Haven't you won some Stoker Awards for the anthologies you've edited? I've been nominated for one. I haven't actually won for one of my editing oh, okay. things yet. Yeah, Not yet, but it's coming. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, the Stokers, and I think rightfully so, by the way, do not actually recognize um, – uh, anthologies that are made up entirely of reprinted material. Um, oh, so, I see. Yeah, so that would rule out the books that Les Klinger and I are doing. Right, right. So it would just be for anthologies that are new, new material. Right, exactly. Well, I wanted to ask you, speaking of new material, um, what did your writing journey look like when you decided, you know, that some people decide right away when they're little kids, some people it comes later. I know you're also a bookseller, so you obviously love books, but what did it look like for you getting your first writing project published? You know, weirdly enough, I started as a screenwriter, which is really strange considering that I did always love books. And I've been working in bookstores since I was 14. My mom managed bookstores. So it wow. runs in the family. Yeah, she managed yeah. actually college bookstores. And when I was a kid, a teenager, she would bring me in during the summer and I would actually work for um, stuff rather than pay. So I would get to go home <laughs> at the end of the week with a used textbook or a little, yeah, <laughs> pan I liked or whatever and it was great um but yeah I there was one thing that made me want to become a writer and even though I had written before that I was 15 when I saw this little movie called The Exorcist um and yeah that movie just blew my mind and uh, it's it's hard now to explain to people what it was like seeing that movie in a theater in fact we were talking about it last night about what an extraordinary thing it was to be in a theater where people are just absolutely emotionally devastated. People would scream and pass out and run up the aisles. And just there has not been a movie that created a reaction like that since. And when I saw that at the tender age of 15, I left the theater saying, I want to do that. I want to affect people that way. And so I pursued screenwriting for the first half of my writing career. And it wasn't weirdly enough until I had a small measure of success as a screenwriter that I realized it really wasn't for me. Um, (laughs) I ended up with six movies that were produced. There are pretty much only two of them that I think are not complete embarrassments. And the (laughs) rest of them are out there for the world to see. And there's your name plastered all over these things. And they're terrible. Um, And I, yeah, I mean, I, they bear very little resemblance to anything that I wrote. And yet, like I said, there's my name on them. And, and that was deeply, um, unsatisfying to me and did not make me happy. And so by the 90s, 
was when I started to think I should be maybe looking more at this other stuff. And um, I got very lucky and um, met the editor, Stephen Jones, the wonderful British editor, and he invited me to submit things to him, and I started writing prose at that point, and he started buying it, and then so did other people. And at that point, it was like, okay, this feels like what I should be doing. So um, I at that point just kind of moved completely over into prose and I have not really looked back, although I have truthfully done a couple of screenwriting gigs since then as a ghostwriter. Um oh, which is okay. great because Don't put my yeah, name I get on the it. money and <laughs> I get the money and none of the embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is true with, with horror movies, they they're either really good or really campy. So, you know, there doesn't seem to be like, you know, a middle ground there. So it would be difficult to see your work, you know, here it comes on the big screen and it's, you know, not what you had written. (laughs) Right, right. And yet, you know, people assume that it is because people aren't aware of what goes on behind the scenes with these things. Right. How much they change from the original screenplay they bought to what actually comes out. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, because it is Halloween time, uh, I know on your website you talk a little bit about, and you've written a couple books about Halloween as well, but how the trick-or-treating and the costumes and all that kind of thing. And when I was a kid, making deciding what your Halloween costume was going to be had to happen like in summer because you had to make it and <laughs> – and it took a long time. And did you used to make your own Halloween costumes? Do you still remember your favorites? Oh yeah, I did. Um I was I always call myself the weird little girl who wanted to be a monster and not a princess. Uh-huh. <laughs> um but my my two of my favorites actually when I was probably about six, I wanted to be a cave woman and my dad was a hunter. And we had weird stuff around the house all the time. I mean, even though I I was growing up right here in the middle of Southern California, we had stuff like deer pelts (laughs) hanging around the house. (laughs) So uh, my parents worked with me that one year to make me a very authentic cavewoman costume. Um, Wow. Although where where my authenticity fell apart was that I was too small and too little to be able to hold an actual wooden club. So, unfortunately, I had to settle for a plastic wooden club. Um, Oh, well. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then uh, a few years later, I wanted to be a wolf man. And and I had no idea. I was not happy with, like, the plastic mask for wolf men. And I didn't really know how one would go about making a Wolfman mask that looked real. And, And I did this very bizarre thing where I bought a cheap clear plastic mask and glued big lengths of cotton to it um and it actually looked great by the time i was done and and so that was another one of my weird childhood halloween costumes that i really enjoyed making 
Yeah, I I actually was a wolfman one year, and we had my family had a weaving mill, and so there was always tons of yarn lint everywhere. And my dedicated mother helped me. <laughs> we used double face tape, and I had fur everywhere, all over my face, my chest, my hands, everywhere. This lint. <laughs> I thought I looked fantastic, but anyway, oh, with the flannel did. shirt, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had torn the flannel flannel shirt and the pants, and anywhere where there was a tear, we had lint in there. So anyway, yeah, it was quite the furry, quite the furry werewolf. And now I write werewolves, so who knew that I imprinted at that young age? <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be. Right, it was all meant to be. But uh, I do think that it's interesting that things have kind of, for the most part, I think most kids, you know, buy their costumes now. But the ones who used to creatively make things, I think, went like into cosplay. Because my daughter, when she became a teenager, started sewing and making all these she made amazing costumes to go to comic-con every year and some years she would make multiple so that she could be something different every day and i would watch all her friends and i'm like this is their halloween um (laughs) you know because they get so creative in how to make it look like what you know is on an animated cartoon or you know or their favorite TV show or movie, or it's it's really amazing. I would go to Comic-Con in San Diego and see people who made their own Bender costumes from Futurama, and they look like the TV show. I'm just like, wow. And it, it makes me think, you know, this was the next generation of our 70s and 80s Halloween. Um, <laughs> I think I think you're probably right about that. Yes, it um, certainly cosplay seems to have moved well past Halloween by now. Right, right. Yeah, they're so they're so intricate and and amazing. Trying to stay to canon with those Star Wars costumes and all that kind of thing. It's wild. But I would like to think that that Halloween. um, In a country like (laughs) Japan, we have the exact reverse that's happened. Um, in Japan, cosplay was big first, and then Halloween caught on. So oh, I suspect I didn't know that. Yeah, it's huge in Japan. It has been for probably about a dozen years now, and um, I think with them, that sort of natural love of costuming spilled over into the right. holiday. Right. Oh, I love that. And I need to ask, of course favorite horror movies to watch this time of year. I'm always doing my annual Halloween movie countdown every year, and I try to swap movies in and out and put in some new, some old, some musical, some funny, some scary. But do you have any go-tos that you love for this season? Well, I'm a a huge fan of John Carpenter's original Halloween, um, which Ah, I know is like the most obvious boring pick, but um, (laughs) no, that's good. I love it anyways. I saw it when I was very young. I was a film student in um, college when I saw it, and I've just loved it ever since. It, um, it just I, I try to watch that every year, but I will give a really odd recommendation this year, which is not a movie but is a limited Netflix series which almost no one has seen, and it's my favorite oh. piece of horror in the last, like, ten years. 
Um, wow. And it's a, okay. It's a French series called Marianne. And if you have not seen Marianne, go watch it. Force yourself to read the subtitles. Watch it in the original French language. And it is scary as heck. And it's wow. incredibly original and innovative and moody. It's actually about a female horror writer, so I was predisposed to love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's about, it deals with issues like the responsibility of the writer and creating a character that inspires people to do bad things. And it's just, it's a wonderful series. And there's an older actress in it who plays a witch. And this actress is beyond brilliant. So, um, yeah, I, I just cannot recommend Marianne enough. Okay. I'm going to go look for it because I love strange Netflix, although I need to watch Squid Game, apparently. I'm like, what is that? But everyone is talking about it, including my daughter, who said, you've got to watch it. So I need to watch Squid Game as well. But I've heard that one, <laughs> like, too, what? that, and I'm still trying to get to Midnight Mass. But this is my busy time of the year, so it'll be a while before I can <laughs> sit down with a long right, series. Right, right. <laughs> November. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, before we run out of time, what's next for you? What's coming up next? Well, I have, as I mentioned, I have just finished up a fourth book with Les Klinger that will again be a collection of vintage um, reprint stories that we have been digging out and collating and annotating. Um, that'll be out in 2022. And beyond that, um, just a lot of smaller gigs here and there, a lot of short stories coming out and my Spine Tinglers podcast, which is continuing. New shows of that are released every Tuesday. Um, oh, love so, it. Yeah. And people can listen to Spine Tinglers everywhere, Spotify, iTunes, everywhere? Uh-huh, they sure can. And each week actually has a new um, quote-unquote celebrity reader. So it's been really fun to be writing these stories, and they're, here's somebody like Naomi Grossman from American Horror Story or Dean Haglund from <gasps> The X-Files reading these stories. Love it. And they're your stories? They are, yes. I actually am writing new stories for this every week. And they're they're short shorts, so they're only around 1,200, 1,500 words long. But um, I try to make them something that would be work really well read out loud. They're they're just fun and fast and entertaining. Love it. So everyone check out Spine Tinglers. Sounds perfect for the season. <laughs> Thanks yes, so much exactly. for being here, Lisa. It was great to chat with you again. I hope you have a happy Halloween. Thank you and you as well, Lisa. <laughs> See you later. Thanks for joining Bye-bye. us on Book Life. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.